If your goal is to have a world money that is accessible to everybody, then you have to be okay with everybody using it. The idea that you're just going to sort of write off people that I'm trying to educate because they don't fit in the category that you think, which by the way, those categories are sort of fiat world imposed categories. People yep. are attached to them and they're important, but like if you're just writing off a bunch of people because they don't fit what you think Bitcoin is, then you're not really working mm. towards a, a world money for everybody. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back in, folks. We've reached another week, and with that comes another episode of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Seriously, thanks for choosing to spend some time with us. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, sit down with Jason Meyer. Jason is the author of a new book titled A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. He's also just a regular, super relatable dude. His day job and lifelong passion is teaching high school math. His book and the themes he explores with us in this hour aren't just well thought out. They're not just well delivered. They're also downright inspirational. During our time together, we explore with Jason why Bitcoin is good for the environment, how Bitcoin helps poor and marginalized communities, why Bitcoin is a protest against too-big-to-fail banks, how both the left and the right can agree Bitcoin marks an empowering move forward for humanity, and the significance of what we call the immaculate Bitcoin orgasm. A few weeks ago, we did a deep dive on home mining and the heat bit. Pre-orders for the heat bit mini ended September, and so does the chance to get these puppies at a 30% discount. These heat bits aren't just badass, they pay for themselves. You can get a juicy discount on this 3-in-1 device, a heater, an air purifier, and a Bitcoin miner with code BCB, that's code BCB at heatbit.com. Additionally, if you are planning to go to Bitcoin Amsterdam in October or Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville next July, take 10% off your tickets with code BCB. Lastly, I want to highlight the point that there are certain things in life worth compromising and flexing on, like what movie to watch tonight, what shirt to wear, whether to take a shit in the upstairs or downstairs bathroom. However, there are other things in life you should never compromise on or take shortcuts with, like your values, your health, condoms, or how you store your Bitcoin private keys. If you don't yet own a cold card, what in tarnation are you doing? Choose the world's most trusted and secure signing device, the cold card made by CoinKite. This thing has dual secure elements, it can be truly air-gapped, it's ultra-secure, and it's affordable. You can use code BCB, that's a B, then a C, then a B, BCB, to get a 5% discount and let CoinKite know we sent you. You can also get discounts on a wide variety of CoinKite products, including the block clocks, at the CoinKite link we have down in the notes. Okay, enjoy this one. Jason, thanks for joining us, my friend. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk to you guys about Bitcoin. Absolutely. Uh, we, uh, we generally start off here talking a couple of firehouse stories, but yesterday was something special, I think. Real special. We were, Dan and I, we, uh, we walk by each other, you know, we, we pass in the morning, shift change. So these guys are outside. There's a softball game going on between the cops and the firemen. I think it's, is that this weekend coming up, Dan? Yep. Yep. So we're out there outside throwing a softball around and it becomes quickly like, a dick measuring contest who can toss and launch the softball furthest in the back parking lot. So I walk out there in sandals, ready to go home, and they're just <laughs> lobbing this thing. So I I wait my turn, get a hold of this thing, and crushed. Well, I wouldn't say I crushed him, but I beat him in sandals and yeah. had to walk away. I walked away because I know that someone's gonna beat it, but that was the high point. <laughs> I had to walk out. 
you know, flying high. I got to admit, it was pretty alpha. He just waltzed out there. We were all warmed up. He grabbed this thing and just sent it, Jason. And uh, <laughs> flew, flew it over the moon? Yeah. Or like he had gone? <laughs> Text the rest of the day from uh, from Jim saying that he beat me and I'm a, I'm a cuck. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't even believe it though. He can't replicate that environment though. That walk off, and then you just hopped in your truck, flicked everyone off, and went home. There's a thing of beauty. <laughs> like a, a mic drop. I, you yeah. know, it, it reminds me. I saw somewhere like a, a good measure of uh, overall fitness is to like kneel down and throw a basketball as far as you can, and mm-hmm. like you just sort of like hurl it. But you have to be on your knees. And I it surprised the hell out of me, right? So, of course, as soon as I found this out, walk over to the gym, grab a basketball, like, how far can I get it, right? And I was like, <laughs> that at that moment, I was probably as fit as I, I have been. And I got it, like, to the opposite uh, free throw line. I was like, all right, that's good. I'm going to walk away from it. I don't need to do any more. That sounds like some distance. We're going to yeah. bring that to the firehouse. This is a test of virility, boys. Get on your knees. <laughs> that is a new contest right there. I mean, I there sent this go. tweet. Yet I sent this tweet yesterday morning after, and I said something to the effect of, "This is the only re- career where grown ass men in their thirties, forties, and fifties vehemently debate and then contest who can throw the furthest, run the fastest, swim yep. the fastest, <laughs> lift the most." We had an arm measuring yep. contest a couple of months ago, just randomly, like no one plans this stuff. It just kind of happens. And the thing that I love it too is that it's debated more than it's done. So before the contest happens, like now that now that the softball throwing is a thing, well, now all the houses are going to do it and it's probably going to, you know, there's going to be tape out in the back parking lot that you can go the furthest. But more time will be spent at lunch and dinner on the whiteboard mapping out who probably is going to win. Maybe some bets uh, will be cast. Mm. Derivatives market, basically <laughs> on. <laughs> it's just odds. <laughs> like Caesar's sports app, right? The betting. <laughs> we can, yeah. Exactly. Uh, these are all things easy to measure, right? So it's not, you know, you're like, all right, go out and run and throw and, and we'll just measure yeah. it. Um, Talk so, is cheap. Talk mm, is cheap when exact, you're doing basic exactly contests right. like this. It is, yeah. man. <laughs> you got to do the work. You got to prove it. Jason, uh, tell us about yourself for those of our audience who are not aware. Who are you? Where are you? What do you do? Um, I am in, uh, I'm in the state of Connecticut. I am a high school math teacher. That's my day job. That's my fiat mining job. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately like that was my, my ambition as a kid. I just want to grow up and be a teacher. And then I decided, okay, math is the thing I want to teach, um, and have been in love with it Been teaching for a couple of decades now. Um, and then got into Bitcoin, uh, a little while ago and, and ended up writing a book, uh, which really was, a is meant as an educational resource for people, uh, progressives case for Bitcoin, which is really designed to like uh, attract a bunch of right pre-coiners. Yeah, oh, there it is. <laughs> uh, uh, pre-coiners who don't know a lot about football or uh, football, a lot about Bitcoin and want to learn more. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward to football season. Me too. <laughs> and so that's me, right? Like I, I just decided to to sort of leverage my experience as a teacher and say, all right, how can I educate and uh, inform people about this really you know, important thing that's uh, important to me and I think important to the world. Yeah. How did you get exposed to Bitcoin originally? Where did that stem from? Yeah. Like, I mean, like everyone, I had like a false start, right? Like I, um, I discovered that I could mine Bitcoin on my laptop uh, in like 2012 and Holy like shit. set up, yeah, set up an account to do that and then like never logged in 
ever again because I had no idea what the fuck it was. <laughs> I was just oh, like, what, what? You know, so so I logged in years later after I actually like really got into it and it was like zero Bitcoin mine because I just forgot about it. Um, all I knew was that it was harder to mine Bitcoin over time. And I just thought that, yeah, I didn't know what that meant. So that was my false start. Uh, my real Bitcoin journey started a buddy of mine uh, said like, hey, you should really look into this. You should buy some Bitcoin. He sent me a link. Um, and I did. I bought $20 worth of Bitcoin. So oh, this thing is still around. Like it must be, you know, interesting, right? And it's like, oh, I'll buy $20 worth. And then I very quickly realized that I had no idea what I was investing in. Like what, like where did that $20 go? Um, right. And it just sent me down a rabbit hole to, to learn. Like I remember it was like bath time with my son and he was like splashing in the bath and I'm like watching a YouTube video trying to learn about blockchains. It's like, no, no, no sh- I'll get like, I'll rinse your hair out in a minute, you know? Like, and I was just sitting like on the floor in the bathroom, like watching my phone, like trying to learn about uh, what, a, what is a blockchain and what is Bitcoin. So that, that's how I started. Um, and then I said, all right, well, I want to learn more. And I got intrigued by the math and the technology behind it and then uh, never stopped learning. Well, I was going to say as a testament to the book you wrote, Josh, we'll, we'll basically tell people our trick. If we see you in person and you say, hey, I'd come on the podcast, we may lie to your face. We'll be like, sure. Yeah, it sounds like a great <laughs> idea. But we won't have you on here unless we actually find what you're doing interesting. So we got your book, we read your book, and yeah. we were just like, this book's awesome. It's, it's so well researched. It's so well distilled. We were saying before we click record, I think it could just be rephrased a normal person or a moderate's case for Bitcoin. And it's, right. it's very high on my list. I, I, it's hard to rank these, about, but, but entry resources for a huge cohort of people in my life where... No disrespect to other resources because they're awesome and each person from different walks of life is going to gravitate towards something different. But for for the individual that's going to be turned off by, say, the Bitcoin standard, this is a much more approachable version that goes from square one. And I think I think addresses a lot of more holistic issues that that normal people in the population, not from libertarian or right leaning backgrounds, latch on to, which we'll get to more in this discussion. And I, I think that's much needed in Bitcoin. But I just we have an appreciation for how hard it is to get things done on the side of a main mm-hmm. career. Even doing this podcast, in addition to firefighting with a family, right. is it's For taxing. Sure. So to put this thing out, in addition to being a math teacher, I don't know how you did it, man, but very impressive. Yeah. I don't think that it's necessarily... I mean, anyone from a libertarian background or conservative could read this book too and take tons from it. Um, it so people listening and hear the name of the book, you shouldn't let that pigeonhole it into something you're mm-hmm. not interested in just because of the name. It's definitely got a lot of signal um, for anybody across the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I appreciate you guys saying that because really it's, it's um, I, I'm just trying to make the case for Bitcoin as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. And I realized that there wasn't really a resource uh, out there that spoke to people in, in their language. And, you know, whoever reads it, even if you're not a progressive or a liberal or left side of the spectrum, like maybe you know people who are, and if you want to orange pill them, then hopefully the book has something for you uh, along those lines also. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll tell you how I wrote it. I mean, <laughs> Anne had a job as, uh, you know, I was, I used to be head of my department and that's a really hard job. Um, and I got the idea for the book while I was like department head and that's like nonstop work and stress and problems and fires you have to put out like metaphorical fires. My tenure for that like ended and the next day I started writing the book um, mm. and I just woke up 
my wife was very clear, like, I love that you're writing a book, but like, it can't take away from the family too much. So we need to be thoughtful about that. So I woke up at five in the morning, uh, every morning and wrote, uh, you know, until it was time to get the kids packed up for school. Right. Like, so I woke up early mornings. I hate doing that, <laughs> but I woke up early every morning to work on the book and it was just a passion project. You know, I honestly, when I started, I didn't think anybody would ever hear about it. Nobody would ever read it. And of course, like it's gone on a different path, which I'm grateful and humbled by for sure. Good for you, man. Mm. I was also going to say back to a previous comment about if you are someone that's triggered by the title, which by the way, us shilling this book over the last few months, we've seen a few of them. People that even just yes. hearing the name of the, hearing the name of the book, they get triggered. Clearly having never read a page of it are immediately tearing it to shreds. If that's you and you feel triggered by the name, all the more reason to read it, to get yeah. out of yeah. the, the, the bubble that you're in. For sure. And I think that's one of the most uh, important things that you speak about in the book is these echo chambers. Mm. And I, I resonate with that strongly. I try to expose myself as much as I can to a wide range of views because you're we're all living in our own cacophony, our own echo chamber that is, you know, these algorithms on the internet, they're all kind of they understand that there's two things that you, you're going to click on, something you agree with or something you vehemently disagree with. So there's clickbait. There's all this crap out there to just enrage you, to get you to engage more. But I mean, on Twitter, especially as you kind of curate the people you follow, people generally follow people they agree with and they resonate with. So we all kind of build these own echo chambers naturally for ourselves. It's incredibly important to step outside of that, get yourself some exposure to other points of view. I mean, so being on the progressive side in Bitcoin, you must have these conversations quite often. What is your go-to to maybe introduce people to your perspective versus the more conservative uh, mainstream and Bitcoin perspective? How do you approach? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what you say about these echo chambers and those political bubbles are is really important, right? Because now I feel like I have the vantage point of being in two different political bubbles or two different echo chambers. Uh, it's not like I would yeah. love to be able to say I transcended it, but I have it, right? I'm in this Bitcoin echo chamber and I'm also in like sort of liberal politics uh, echo chamber. And what shocks me is the the sheer amount of things that overlap, right? Like there is like mm. conflict that doesn't need to exist on some of this stuff, right? It's just sort of the people in charge want us bickering about uh, little things. And yeah, at the same time, there's plenty of important like concepts where we need to have like honest debate and like authentic dialogue about it because not everybody's going to agree that that's hard to happen when you're just sort of like fighting with one another. Um, what, I, what I say in, in terms of like the Bitcoin space and people like you were saying, like they get triggered by the name and say, like, you know, uh, like, oh, you can't be a progressive and into Bitcoin, all of these things, right? I, I've heard it all. I think that the, the message that I would like to, to get out there is yeah, what do you care more about? Do you care more about people adopting and learning about Bitcoin, or do you care more about them agreeing with you on this these other ten political lists that we're supposed to be fighting about? Because I care more about the Bitcoin and making sure that people can learn about it, feel comfortable in the space, uh, adopt it, and just sort of continue their journey. And that's that was the motivation behind the book. It wasn't as if I looked at the Bitcoin space and was like offended by as a liberal. I was like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. We need something. It was really as an educator and saying like. Bitcoin is kind of a complicated um, technical issue that is like wide ranging in terms of what you have to learn. And really, in order to learn it well, you need to feel comfortable and have a resource out there that speaks to you. And so the book was not written as like, 
this crazy liberal who like felt like we need to change the Bitcoin space. It was just, hey, how do we educate new people? How do we make new people feel comfortable learning about something that's really scary? And uh, that's what motivated the book. So it's not really like, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. If you're in a Bitcoin, like I'm not trying to make you more liberal. <laughs> like I just want people who are not into Bitcoin already to be comfortable learning about it. I think that's a really mature perspective. And the very fact that someone from your shoes with your dispositions gave Bitcoin the time of day is is sort of a testament to your thinking ability. Because let's be dead honest, and I'm not saying that this is inherently a bad thing about Bitcoin, but it is not just right-leaning in social media, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's quite right-leaning, in my opinion. Okay. And so if you're if you're coming from a different perspective, it's rough water. The waves are pretty choppy on the surface. Underneath, there's a beautiful reef that everybody can gaze at, but it takes somebody that's willing to put that snorkel on, look underneath and and see that because it is a lot to take in with someone from your background. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move this into a question, putting you on the spot here, maybe a little bit tough to answer off the cuff, (laughs) but for somebody that's from a pretty right to far right perspective. Uh-huh. What would you say is most commonly misunderstood or misrepresented about progressives and liberals? Let's let's burn down some straw men sure. for somebody that hasn't like in, in, or even interacted with someone like you uh-huh. for 10 years, yeah. right? They've yeah. built this filter bubble, all their friends and family, anybody that ever says anything, they react to like a couple of these interactions we've been a part of together yeah. on Twitter. Sure. What do you say to that person? What, They're what, just like a, the kind of person who's never had, has never sat down and actually listened to the other perspective without getting, right. you know, rage quitting and walking away or just not even engaging. <laughs> like you get the opportunity here to talk to them. Beautiful. Um, hi, everyone. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm Jason and I'm very friendly. Um, I think that the number one thing I hear uh, that just doesn't ring true for me, uh, but I think people like to, uh, when, they, when they're going into it in like a, a combat stance, right? They're going to fight me and they're going to tell me that I'm an idiot or whatever. It's, it's simply just this assumption that because I call myself progressive or I'm a liberal person that like I uh, blindly accept anything the government tells me and I blindly want the government to be bigger no matter what. And therefore... If, if those things are true, then you can't envision a world in which I would support Bitcoin because it goes against those basic assumptions. And those assumptions mm. are completely wrong. There's plenty of people on the left side of the political spectrum that look at the world the way it is, don't like what's happening. They look at some of the things the government is doing, don't like some of the things that the government is doing and, and want to change it. And I think that there's a there's a really rich history of people on the left side of the political spectrum, like standing up against authority, uh, telling a government, like, we don't want you doing this. And so like to boil it down to that cartoon, which is just like, you are a statist, you want the government to be as big as possible. You want them to do everything for you. Like, this is just not true. There's way more nuance. Like, I'm not Mm. saying we agree on everything, but certainly like if that's your vantage point, then you're not going to really kind of see the nuance at all. Right. It's just going to be like, well, Bitcoin fights that and that's therefore like you can't like Bitcoin. So I'd say understanding that people on the left side of the political spectrum take a look at like, you know, some of the things our government is doing and they don't like it, right? It's not like we blindly just want the government to be bigger and bigger or do whatever they want or control us or anything like that. So I just say, open yourself up to a more nuanced conversation, find out like the things that I don't like about our government are different than the things that an ultra conservative right-leaning person might not like. But it's not like I don't have a, dis- a distaste for like 
my government or my representatives or the political process. Like there's there's actually overlap there and there's conversations that could be had if you're willing to have them. And it's, I mean, it's a pretty common thread that people on either side of the aisle, they acquiesce to their own political party, whether or not they think it through. I, it feels like very commonly um, people just necessarily, and they're very tribal. So they, they're in their group, they're in group. And when the in-group is doing something, they may not, I mean, if, if the, the opposing party was doing exactly what they're doing, they'd have a huge problem with it. But because right. it's their group, it's their in-group, they're going to allow it to happen without really much you know, fanfare. And the other thing that I think is, I mean, this is an obvious statement, but it's worth saying the mainstream media on either side is always presenting the craziest ideas from the opposing view. Like you're not, you're seeing the craziest, you know, right wing conservatives and you're seeing the craziest left wing yes. liberals. Right. And then right. that information is propagated as if that's normal on the other side, which it very, very often is not, not even close. And I think that that goes to the thing, right? Well, who who do I want to debate, right? Like, do I want to debate a reasonable, nuanced individual that has thoughts and ideas, or do I want to debate like a crazy lunatic that disagrees with me on every single thing? It's easier to debate somebody who's insane, right? So it just sort of feeds that bias that you already have, and like the mm. news outlets on both sides know that, and like they are very profitable in sort of peddling this fear of the mm. other side and. All you get to do is pick like which flavor of fear do I get to buy, right? Do I get to buy the blue fear? Do I get to buy the red fear? <laughs> have you guys seen the South Park episode <laughs> where they have the shit sandwich and the giant douche? And that's the uh, political, those are the political yeah. choices you have <laughs> every election period. It's a great episode. If, if you guys haven't seen it, I, I, I have, recommend. I have it. No, uh, it sounds like real life, but yeah, yep. sure. It's <laughs> uh, a great episode. Two sort of basic high level comments from your book. Mm -hmm that I think are worth sharing. The first one is, it goes back to what you were mentioning a second ago, which is there's a lot of crossover between bubbles or camps that people wouldn't expect. I've had this quote here from you on page 173 that says, it is a progressive ideal to fight against bullies taking advantage of the vulnerable, especially when the bully is able to game the rules to their benefit. Bitcoin is progressive in exactly this way. Okay, this is... This is something you could read this sentence to every liberal progressive. You could read it to every hardcore Bitcoin libertarian, and they would align on the fact that the system is not oriented for fairness and equity from the bottom up, right? right? It's top down, and that's a problem. Huge amount of overlap for there. Sure. Absolutely. The second thing, yep. just to, to dispel myths here, and I'm going to share my screen because I was thinking about this when you were talking a second ago, of this, this sort of straw man that liberals just want to spend tons of money. Okay, well, let's pull up this chart. You guys see this? There it is. Yep. Yeah, you guys have this. Uh, yeah, okay. This is from... I love this chart. <laughs> this is from Lavish's, one of Lavish's recent pieces. Right. And it's basically showing you U.S. debt rising mm -hmm. and red and blue for which parties are responsible. Mm -hmm. uh, they are both responsible, folks. So if you're, if you're sitting there thinking liberals spend and conservatives don't, you just don't have a good read on how the budget works right. in the United States. And um, I also think your book gets the wheels turning for folks about where is this money going? An example that I've used recently, and I'm not saying I'm for paying off all student debt. I think it's, a, it's up for debate. I can see both sides of the argument, but people that are so adamantly against it. And then you ask them, do you have any idea 
how much money has been funneled into fixed income treasury markets over the last 10 years, if any clue. You compare that number in the trillions to the number needed to pay off student debt, and they're like, holy shit. Like, there's, there's so much liquidity entering the system. And I think people like you are starting to ask the questions, which are very valid. Is this money being best allocated right. on the forever wars and on all the monetary policy and all this stuff? Is there a way we can siphon this into other areas? So I think mm-hmm. this is where the, 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 the liberal progressive social programs dynamic gets more complex is when you have when you actually lay down the budget and you look at the numbers of where money is going. And I, I'm not saying we don't have an entitlements problem. We, we do. We have an overspending problem. We have a programs problem. But the problems with spending stem way further beyond that. Right. Any follow-ups or comments on that? Because I think that's a powerful theme that just for folks that don't understand the numbers. The numbers just on the, you know, the forever war you mentioned. Some, I mean, the the estimate from, I don't know if this is from the Pentagon, it's a number that came to my head uh, recently. It was seven trillion or so we spent on in the 20 years we were engaged in Iraq, Afghanistan. Right. That right. is a staggering amount of money. I mean, it's just well, not fathomable. How much money that is to most people, and and I think that's right. Like I think that a lot of people are sort of like penny wise and pound foolish because they latch onto this idea. Oh, how dare you pay off student loans? And I'm not, you know, whatever you feel about that, but just in terms of scale, the things that I would like to get rid of the government doing cost a lot more than than that, right? And you can say, all right, well, yeah. is it right or wrong to do that? Is a different question, but like it costs pennies on the dollar to to solve that problem, you know, quote unquote, solve it. Um, and I just think that it's, you know, what, what they what they're doing is they're getting us to fight about like little stuff like that, and st- and then letting the system run as it is, right? Like I think that mm. a lot of people like to refer to Democrats as tax and spend, and really it's like both parties are just spend, you know, <laughs> like right. it's all they're Absolutely. doing. Right? So they're <laughs> yeah. just printing money. They, it's like, uh, and and the Democrats are idiots because they let this label, oh, tax and spend liberal, right? Well, it's like the Democrats and Republicans are just spending, like nobody's taxing. It's just printing the money and it's, uh-huh. you know, it's going out the door. So I For think sure. that that perspective, like how big is the debt? Like, why are these things happening? And then what are like, you know, like, you know, I'll speak for myself. Like, I don't think that we should probably have kids going hungry to school, like, because they can't afford the school lunch. Like, that should, probably shouldn't be happening. And like, the price tag for that is like a fraction of some of these other things. But like, that's what we're fighting about. That's like January QE, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. Right. If yeah. that. <laughs> so, if that. So even, like, you know? you know, we're like, and then who's like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Right? Like, oh, I want to feed kids who are poor and can't have lunch, and they're like, well, you're spending too much money. It's like. We're all just bickering about like the, the the fringes of the budget and not really what's happening. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Is it true that progressives use nonstick pants? <laughs> I <don't, laughs> I, they must, right? I mean, if yeah. you've been on Twitter, it's like cast iron, stainless steel. No, I mean, I'm just Teflon family. Just uh, Teflon. You know, because I vote for Joe Biden and like a Teflon. That's it. It comes so, in the mail automatically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is up, folks? It's Dan here, and I'm going to take just a quick moment to talk to you about where Josh and I buy our Bitcoin, and that is at Swan Bitcoin. The two of us have now been dollar cost averaging on Swan for years, and here's why. It's user-friendly. The fees are low and transparent. Withdrawals are absolutely free. They offer attentive expert service, and Swan has a full suite of financial services, including an IRA product where you can roll a traditional or a Roth IRA into Bitcoin, Swan Private for high net worth individuals, and coming soon, 
Swan Vault for collaborative custody. In our view, Swan just gets it. They're focused on Bitcoin only. They provide really solid and ongoing education, and they strongly encourage self-custody. Maybe most importantly, it's low friction. Setting up and accessing a Swan account is so easy that it's boomer and firefighter proof. Keep that stack thick. That's T-H-I-C, no K at the end, at swan.com. So yeah, one of the, I thought one of the principles or one of the tenets of your book that was best uh, aimed at progressives or that, uh, that, that situation or that aspect of, of them is the energy consumption of Bitcoin. And you dispelled a lot of, a lot of the thought around, you know, number one, is energy consumption necessarily bad? Should we be moralizing energy consumption? And then you went through a list of, you know, a whole bunch of uh, ideations about how Bitcoin's using, you know, 55% of it is uh, green energy. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the perspective of progressives when it comes to Bitcoin and its energy use. Um, I think obviously for, for lots of reasons, this is the most important piece, like at, at least in this moment of time, because it's a, it's, it's a critique of Bitcoin that resonates with people on the left side of the spectrum. And I, I think it's important to at least acknowledge there are certain things for, for anybody. And, and this spans the whole political spectrum. It's not just like liberals who feel this way, but like, like, Climate change and damage to the environment and energy consumption are all things that um, resonate with like a progressive environmentalist person. And it, the, and to be the honest, critical, just people in general. Yeah. Well, people in general. But I think that for, for people who like I'm friendly with, I'm colleagues with, I'm friends with, um, like the critical thinking can kind of stop, right? You have these shortcuts, these categories. That, okay, well, that's bad for the environment. Therefore, I don't need to think about it anymore. It's bad. Yeah, you put it in that bucket and now it's just there and right. it's no longer relevant. And it's actually just it's like an emotional reaction because it makes you feel good to be able to say like, oh, well, that's bad for the environment and I'm a good person. So I'm going to not like that thing. And <laughs> what right. I'm trying to do in the book is just get us past that emotional response, that one dimensional thinking about like energy use equals bad and think about what's the energy being used for. Is it re like is it incentivizing renewables? Is it uh, itself incentivized to become greener over time. Like, is there societal benefit for using this energy? It's not just sort of wasted and burned off. Um, and so all of those are more complicated questions. And I think that the the real struggle is there's a 30 second soundbite that says Bitcoin is bad for the environment, therefore you shouldn't like it. And the response to that is never 30 seconds. You have to understand how energy grids work. You have to understand the, the limitations yes. of renewables. You have to understand how Bitcoin operates. Mm. So like you're you're trying to combat a, a 10 second, 30 second soundbite with actual nuanced, detailed information. And it's just hard. It's a, it's a challenge. It's hard to do. So that's what I'm trying to do in that chapter in the book and in the conversations that I have with people in real life. Yeah. Like anything, but especially Bitcoin, it takes just tons and tons of time and exposure to material and reading and researching or you know, you just, it is very difficult to, to catch the nuances of these things, of this thing specifically, mm -hmm. but I yeah. thought you did a really good job in a succinct chapter that kind of spread that out and made it an easy to understand digestible thing. This is such an important idea though, because there are some very key prerequisites to the energy conversation. You can shortcut people to certain Bitcoin realizations scarcity, mm -hmm. hard money, that sort of thing. Right. When it comes to energy, 
you can't really like if, if, to your vocation. You can't you cannot bring someone into a calculus class that hasn't had algebra two and all this stuff mm-hmm. in between. It's just it's not possible. They <laughs> will not understand a fucking word you say from the front of the room right. if they haven't taken the first classes. And for me, Bitcoin has been an exercise in starting to learn just the basics about how global energy grids and distribution work. And I think a lot of people miss the very first building block. And this is, I'm going to pick a little bit more on progressives right now, (laughs) but it's across the spectrum of just thinking that energy is bad. Energy is not bad. The expansion of energy is the reason that our species is at the position we are in today, right? Abundant energy usage and production is the engine of human progress. And if you were to map GDP and global poverty and energy usage per capita, they're in lockstep. You're going to mm-hmm. see that those correlate one to one. And so this is just a very complex issue. The challenge here, gentlemen, is that simple narratives win. Mm-hmm. We very well may have a greenhouse effect and global warming and some and some major climate issues, but just to shut it down and just to say, stop using hydrocarbons. Right. Sounds sexy. <laughs> sounds great. Doesn't work. And a lot of the downsides to that move. Yes, they exist in the first world. And we've seen that over the last few years with first world nations making some mistakes, decarbonizing earlier than they should. But a lot of these consequences head out to the third world. Mm -hmm. Because as we've moved into the industrial age and beyond into the 21st century, the reason first world nations are where they are is because of their ability to harness energy. Mm -hmm. And when you just say, it's bad, we can't use this. And you tell that to African nations and South American nations, they're the ones that are going to be most prominently disenfranchised. The point here, if we are going to decarbonize, we need to find solutions that work and incentivize this move. And Bitcoin steps in marvelously. Absolutely. Why don't you do just a a high level outline (laughs) of why Bitcoin is potentially such a profound and important free market catalyst for renewable energy production? It's, um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of this sort of anecdote where, you know, you have Bitcoin miners using, you know, the potential to use methane and burn off methane in a way that, you know, is a non-rival consumer of electricity. You're, you're taking methane and processing it in a way that's less harmful for the environment. And all of that should be happening by the letter of the law already, like in landfills. And uh, the, the infrastructure to set that up is very expensive and very time consuming and very complicated. And so a lot of landfills that are find themselves in that middle ground where like they're not big enough to monetize the electricity they produce just don't do it. And they don't do it uh, w- even though it's like by law they should and they're facing like fines uh, because it's hard to get caught not doing it because the people who are in charge of enforcing it are overworked, right? And so what you have is this incentive that says we're going to punish you if you don't mitigate this methane. Uh, and it's still landfills aren't doing it. Now, contrast that with the situation where you have a Bitcoin miner coming in and says, I'm going to use this methane. I'm going to mitigate the methane. I'm going to monetize the electricity that comes out of it. I'm going to give you money back. We're going to you know, mine Bitcoin and, and actually incentivize that build out. Uh, it helps with the infrastructure. You know, it helps with sort of the initial capital investment. And what you're doing is you're, you're motivating that move by giving a carrot instead of a stick, right? The stick doesn't work. Mm. The penalties, it's so unlikely they're going to get caught. The penalties are worth it in the end because the infrastructure to build out these facilities is so high. 
So instead of that stick, you just bring out the carrot, say, do the right thing anyway. This is the right thing to do for the environment. And you will get rewarded or, you know, for that in a financial way. And you're also happen to be mitigating this methane, which is way more harmful than, you know, CO2 for our atmosphere and all of that stuff. So that's just one kind of example to say, all right, let's do, like you said, a free market solution. Like, let's start talking about rewarding the people for doing the right thing. Bitcoin does that. They step in, you know, a Bitcoin miner is location agnostic, is able to use, uh, you know, electricity that's not being consumed for anything else. A lot of people think, okay, energy use equals bad because that energy should be going to a hospital or something. And the truth is like Bitcoin is a non-rival consumer of electricity at the margin. So mm. you're not taking electricity away from orphanages or anything like that. You're just actually using electricity that would have been wasted, um, right. you know, anyway. So Right. And this is, again, a misconception um, of energy. Like they have to produce, mm. these plants are not designed to like throttle down. They are producing... X amount of energy, if it's not getting consumed, it's literally getting wasted. Uh, there's a good right. example of that. I, I believe it's ERCOT in Texas. They, there's a shitload of Bitcoin miners there. They can ramp right. up their capacity. They can turn it off instantly. So they're consuming the base load that they're producing. But so in the summer heat, when everyone needs their air conditioning running, the Bitcoin miners simply throttle down or turn off. And the energy is then you know placed for the consumers to use it to, to uh, use air conditioning in their houses. But it all mm -hmm. it, and it works relatively seamlessly, and it can be done instantaneously. Right. And and the the wonderful thing is that Bitcoin mining is like uniquely positioned to do that well. There are other industries yes. that use that um, demand response. Say, okay, oh, you need this electricity. Let's give you back some, and that's very beneficial to the grid and the power producers and like you know the the power companies. They actually incentivize that and want that to happen. But Bitcoin mining is the best at it. We can, you know, a Bitcoin miner can respond like in real time to real demand. And I think a lot of people just don't realize the the very basic fact, like when you produce electricity, it needs to get used right then. Like you, there, the, we don't have storage yes. capacity, right? So like if you want a bunch of solar panels and wind turbines out there and it's producing a lot of electricity, either it gets used or it gets wasted, right? And so I think yep. Bitcoin mining can step in in exactly that way. And a lot of people don't, I, I really, I'm, I'm being serious, a lot of people across the political spectrum don't understand how the electricity works. So they think, oh, well, the more solar panels, the more wind turbines, the better. That's green energy. It's sustainable. There's a lot of like misconceptions there. But what they don't realize is like any energy that gets produced in that moment needs to be used. And if you want to yes. overbuild the the solar and the wind in order to have your entire grid more green, then you need to have somebody coming in and, and incentivizing that, monetizing that electricity and actually using it instead of just sort of grounding it into the ground. Has to be overbuilt. That is a very important point yeah. for sustainable energy. You can't because yeah. these things can't be counted on to work all the time. The wind's not always blowing. The sun's not always shining 100%. There's cloudy days. You know, mm -hmm. you've got nighttime, obviously, for solar panels not producing. So you have to overbuild the capacity to a massive extent. And the only way to do that reasonably, um, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, is having Bitcoin take up the load that would otherwise be completely wasted because these things are not cheap. These giant windmills are hugely expensive. So are the solar panels. And it's uh, this is just the only way to reasonably sustain these things or build them out and have them be profitable from day one. Yeah. And, and the people at the power companies know this, right? The people that I've spoken to have already been saying that like their long-term strategy, they're already investing in land and property that they know they can build 
these renewable energy sources on, right? Like solar panels and wind turbines for five, 10 years down the line, because they know that there's going to be a demand for this, you know, quote unquote, green energy. And they've admitted to me, like behind closed doors, like Bitcoin mining is the perfect load for us. It's a, like a high responsive load that's totally flexible. Like that's exactly what we need in order to make those projects run because we're buying land out here that you know, we know we're going to put solar panels on in the future. There's nobody demanding that electricity now. So in order to actually yes. like invest in that infrastructure to build that renewable energy, you need a customer that can actually respond in real time. And, and Bitcoin mining does that. So uh, the people who are owning and working for and, and running these uh, power companies know exactly what we're talking about already. Um, and hopefully more of them can get turned on to Bitcoin because I think that's going to help them too. Jason, we had uh, Eric Hersman on here a few months ago. Bring him up. Loved the conversation. By the way, this is one of the mo- one of the most painful invites we've turned down, Josh, because of real life getting in the way. Was Hersman literally invited us to Africa for the oh. launching of a project to go big game hunting? That would be oh. so cool. And we couldn't say yes, Josh. We just couldn't couldn't make it out there. That's too bad. Hersman, one day. Uh, the point <laughs> is that he came to mind because he talked about some of these renewable projects, I think it was in Kenya. Mm-hmm. I have to listen back, but he was just talking about how these things are being built out, can't be monetized for years on end, right? right? You're building a wind farm, you're seven years from getting one cent back and Bitcoin can step in. And this gets to the whole point that, the, that we've covered here today and we've covered ad nauseum on the show in the past, which is that what Bitcoin really does, if I was to distill it, is it overcomes bad economics of renewables. Right. You mm-hmm. have people like Saifedean Amus walking around talking about how bad the economics are of renewable projects. Well, he's largely right because these things need to be so drastically overbuilt. Right. Josh, as you said, energy isn't consumed necessarily exactly when the sun shines or the wind blows. So you're talking about needing tremendous amounts of redundancy, huge overbuilding, which is which is bad economics. Here comes Bitcoin to solve this problem on the free market. I sent this tweet the other day that said, Bitcoin is the most unique buyer of energy on the planet, a true free market catalyst for renewable infrastructure. It's eco-friendly, not because of flimsy centralized subsidies, but because (laughs) of real incentives. And this is what's important because when you think long-term and we go to just how society has been best organized over time, if it is all artificial scaffolding through the through subsidies coming from the government, it is going to be so hard to stand this stuff up in the quantities that's required. I also think we could spend a whole episode talking about why Bitcoin is such a unique buyer of energy, because I know for a lot of people when they hear this, they're like, well, why can't other data centers do the same thing? It's because they can't withstand the intermittency. Right. And you hit at this some, I think, in your book talking about if you're Netflix or Amazon or Google, you can't just turn a switch on and off. No. You can't just cut people off. Whereas right. in Bitcoin, you can. You can say, I'm mining right now. Oh, now energy is required back on the grid. I'm not. Right. And that requires a digital location agnostic monetary asset that has value mm-hmm. that's going to be here for a long time, right? That energy utilities can latch on to not for a year because some crypto bro pushed it on YouTube, but because it's got real underlying stability right. in the financial system, you, you start, my point here is you start getting the list down and you're like, this is the only thing that can buy energy in this way. For yeah. sure. And it's, when you talk about these subsidies too, the political winds blow, right? Like the subsidy that's here today might be gone tomorrow because a new politician, a new regime, they completely change us up. Not to mention that political ideations are 
inherently a temporary thing. It's just like a human construct. Mm. Whereas, yes. I mean, you could argue anything's a human construct, but what I'm saying is <laughs> Bitcoin gets us down to more base level physics where this thing is a free market piece that is um, kind of just has built itself at this point, almost free of humanity. Like it's kind of this, uh, <laughs> it's like a wild force yeah. of nature that is right. just going yeah. at this point. And it's not likely to end, much less likely than any political movement or political ideations. I mean, I think that it's, you know, the, the example that I have that you mentioned in the book, which is, you know, like Netflix is totally fine running at a short term loss to make sure that you can watch the TV show you want to watch exactly when you want to watch it. Right. They're not shutting anything down. Um, because there was a heat wave in Texas and people need air conditioning, right? Like, and so I think that, um, you know, the Bitcoin is, as you're saying, like a long-term base layer, like getting back to the physics, like the actual atoms running through, like the electrons moving. Um, and the more people can learn about why Bitcoin consumes and purchases energy differently than any other industry mm. um, is really, that's an important thing to keep learning about and just to, like, keep drilling down because I think that you're going to appreciate the complexity and the nuance of like, what does it mean to be renewable? What does it mean to be green energy? Like why, like why is not using energy just equal waste or bad? Um, those are really important questions to ask. And I think really, if you want to just start with like, what's the motivation, understand why is Bitcoin different than everything else? And that's, what's going to kind of help you learn all of those other things. Yeah. Um, one of the themes I feel like we have to to spend some time on today is the the time you spent in the book talking a, about why Bitcoin should be inherently apolitical. Mm -hmm. You have this quote, you say, writing a progressive's case for Bitcoin is as absurd as writing a conservative case for hammers. <laughs> and you also say, if we allow Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren to control the narrative, Bitcoin will become hyper-partisan. Right. So you're basically saying it shouldn't be partisan. But it's becoming that way. Unpack why it isn't, and then what concerns you about current moves towards partisanship. Um, I think that it, it's it's an important point to make, and I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, I think that Bitcoin, as itself, like by itself, is a tool. Right? It's just something that we can use better money. It's a monetary tool, and it doesn't need to be political at all. Um, and the the book is really meant, and my sort of description and my whole like thesis is. People should feel welcome coming into the space and learning about it because there's a whole interdisciplinary thing you have to learn to understand Bitcoin in a way that's familiar and comfortable to, to people. But my hope is that four years from now or eight years from now, my book is not needed because Bitcoin is just a thing that people use. Uh, right now, I, I feel like it's needed because there's a whole like addressable market out there of people who consider themselves left of center, who hear only bad things about Bitcoin, and we need to get those people on board. So the way I like to describe it is that if my book is like actually successful in its mission, it will not be needed in you know five years. Like it just won't be needed because it will be silly. Like oh why talking about like a it's like a progressive's case for electricity or something or a yeah. hammer. Yeah. Like it'll look stupid on shelves in 20 years. That's our hope. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's hope so. Right. And so I think that it's just, let's, let's get to the point where people can learn about Bitcoin, understand that it is a tool that can be used for whatever purposes that people want to use tools for. And then let's get everybody on board with educating themselves and understanding why it's important. And I just happen to pick like this political lens to do that through. 
Um, but it's not like Bitcoin itself is not political. And, and I think that it's really important the people who are hating on Twitter and like get so riled up about it. Like, I'm not trying to say that Bitcoin is better for progressives than it is for conservatives, or I'm not trying to say if you're into Bitcoin, then you should be a progressive. None of that. I'm just trying to provide an educational resource for people um, that helps them understand Bitcoin in a way they probably haven't thought about it yet. And understand the problems that they see in the world that they kind of agree, hey, here are the things I don't like about how the world is running. And then look at that through a new lens that they've never had before. So I think those are yeah. the goals. Ultimately, it's not a political thing. Like, and so the, like you say, hopefully my book looks silly in a couple of years and that would be great. Yeah. When you just back on the energy front for one last thing, because sure. um, I think this is an important point as well. We talked about its use of energy, how it can you know sustain or help propagate some renewable energy, but we didn't talk about why it is probably worth the energy as much as I think we may need to. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and we mentioned Africa and Gridless and what they're doing. They're being able to stand up some seriously high megawatt stuff that's in villages that could never afford these things to be built. Um, right. and, and then there's the idea that you not only can they help sustain more civilization, more uh, first world order type of civilization in Africa where they're, you know, third world in many places, but it also provides people that have dictatorships ruling their country, the ability to actually have a bank, which is Bitcoin. Yes. They are now cool. banked. There's so many people around the world. I think it's even like 30% of people in the U S aren't banked at this point. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So let's just explore that a little bit about why sure. is Bitcoin worth the energy it's using? Even if it's made not necessarily all clean energy, it's definitely worth it. Bitcoin 2024 is moving to the heart of Bitcoin country, Nashville. Nashville just feels like the proper place for a Bitcoin conference. I can't guarantee we will be on main stage or side stage or even performing a puppet show. I can't, however, say that we will be hanging out with the plebs. And if we have no obligations, we will very likely be getting drunk. Bitcoin Magazine is introducing a new event this spring, Bitcoin Asia. It's shaping up to be an unmissable experience. Stay tuned for more info. Whether you want to visit Bitcoin Asia or Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville, we have a coupon code for you. Use coupon code BCB for 10% off any ticket to either event. That's code BCB. And, and I think that's how I try to frame it in the chapter just to begin with. They say, all right, well, let's talk about what it's doing. Like, what, let's talk about why it's important. And sort of having a censorship resistant, uh, like no gates entry into using a monetary technology is important for people all over the world, like including uh, the US, but really like think about the global South, think about people who are living under authoritarian regimes. Like th there is a lot of good that can be done on this planet with that kind of money and Bitcoin provides that opportunity for everybody. So if you s sort of say, all right, I know that I'm using a lot of energy and like, why is that energy important within the context of making sure we secure the Bitcoin network? But why is the Bitcoin network important? It's all of these other things. I want to do good things. I want to, uh, you know, help people stand up against dictators. Well, you need money that can't be confiscated and seized and funneled and, and all of that. Right. So I think that um, I try to highlight, you know, this idea that everybody maybe either intentionally or unintentionally moralizes the use of energy. And so there's things that we can agree on say, okay, well, this respirator is important to plug into the wall. And like, it's not okay to leave a light on when you leave a, a room, 
well, the, what about the middle? Like, what is the energy being used for and why is it important? So I think that there, those are very important conversations. And it's hard to do because the energy chapter comes early in the book, but all of the benefits that we're talking about are sort of spread out yeah, through the exactly. rest of the book, right? So you kind of say, okay, let's continue to learn why Bitcoin is important. But for the, for the moment, let's say, all right, well, we're allowed to use energy for important things. And we, we're not trying to waste energy. And we're not trying to use any more than it takes. But and we want to be more efficient. But let's keep continue learning about why is it important to stand up to dictators or why is it important to right. have a more peaceful world, I, a more transparent financial system. I think you wrote something along the lines of even a barefooted hippie would agree that, you know, powering a hospital is important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got to kick out of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. So there's things that we agree on, right? Nobody, I, I don't think any reasonable person Again, there's cartoon versions out there, but no reasonable person is like, all right, let's like turn off the carbon fuel like thing right away, like now, like let's stop it because then we, our society collapses, right? So I think that have a reasonable nuanced conversation. How do we transition away from fossil fuels if that's something you care about? And, and then you realize that Bitcoin is an important, an important part of that. It's not the only solution. It's not the only thing that's important to consider, but Bitcoin is a really important part of that transition and that transition for reasonable people, there's a lot of nuance and dialogue that has to happen. Let's talk a little bit about the part of the book, and it's on this same theme of Occupy Wall Street. I think you talked about this with Pish too when you were on with him. I really like this section of the book and basically saying there was a lot of beauty in that movement, but there wasn't a lot of firepower behind it. What did they get right? What were they missing? And what do you see echoed in Bitcoin with regard to those sentiments? Yeah, I think that the the approach that I take um, when I talk about it in the book is that the 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 motivation behind Occupy Wall Street, like the message that it's sending, is not dissimilar to Bitcoin originally. Like in in its inception, Bitcoin is a protest against the government's relationship with too big to fail banks, right? Like you can kind of think about. What, what what are we yep. talking about in the Genesis block and what you know what is Satoshi's quotes and all of that? Like if you find yourself like, oh, I'm a progressive liberal and I think big banks are really horrible because they're abusing people and taking advantage of customers and all of that. Well, like Bitcoin's for you, and that's exactly what, kind of like what the message was from Occupy Wall Street. Except Bitcoin has that staying power. It has like a real practical use case. It has the ability to, to bank on bank people or to put pressure on banks to act in a more transparent and fair way for their customers. Um, and so all of those incentives are already wrapped into Bitcoin. It gives, instead of just protesting, which I, and I think that's important, right? Like you can raise awareness and there's good things to, to come out of protesting. But if you're only protesting, you're not affecting change. And so Bitcoin kind of is like the actionable part of the Occupy Wall Street movement which a lot of progressive people are sympathetic to say, yeah, there's corporations, there's governments, there's like these big banks. I, I don't like what's going on there. Um, and Bitcoin offers like an actual alternative that's like practical and applicable to their everyday life if they would only learn about it. So I think that that's a connection that hopefully resonates with a lot of people because there's a lot of people out there that think that way. Mm. Yeah, I think this back to crossover between groups a lot of people in that more liberal camp that you're swimming in would be saying, we live in a 21st century environment where the rich and powerful call way too many of the shots. Mm -hmm. And as a Bitcoiner, 
people that start to understand this protocol and the breakdown of the current monetary system, they would say, that is the case. And a lot of that is due to fiat money, right? Because of money, supply and prices at the centralized behest of policymakers, you have an environment where the rich and powerful control is exaggerated more than it would be on a harder money standard. Right. Um, and, and so the more the monetary system is centralized, which it's been increasingly so for the last few decades, the more you're going to see this problem. And I think this is where for me, I, my hope is for a lot of, of people that have been closed off to it, they can start to see that this gets to a base layer problem mm. that's accentuated some of the inequality sure. and power mismatches in society that a lot of responsible progressives are battling against. I think it's, it's also like we're both from either side of this, we're both seeing the same problem, which is like this crony capitalism kind of, mm. and we, we both disagree with that. Maybe we view it in different ways, but these two ships passing in the night need to figure out how to, how to meet each other and get this thing, right. you know, figured out because nobody on either side of this is for like the Cantillon effect that is going on from the top down here. We're all getting screwed by it. And it's like this uh, divide and conquer. I don't even know if it's organized well enough to, uh, you know, like it's a, it's not like a centrally organized thing. Um, it's not like a giant conspiracy to like split us all up and make us fight each other. But it's just like this human nature right. of tribalism that just naturally coalesces into people disliking each other on their face and then maybe not organizing well enough to mm. to get at the, you know, the big boss that is kind of fucking us all here. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to prep for the, the boss battle. Um, I, I think that you're right. And that's sort of what I've seen by looking at the Bitcoin space and sort of interacting with people who are complete normies and not interested in Bitcoin at all, dis despite my efforts, um, is it, almost everybody sees the same problems and they can kind of see how the world is unfair and how people get to take advantage of that unfairness and, and all of those things. Um, it's just sort of the allocation of responsibility for those problems is different from different people. And so somebody on the left has a complete and a complete list of reasons why like, you know, banks are messed up or, you know, we have inequality that's like really extreme. Um, and Bitcoin doesn't factor into it. And so, or like fiat money or the central bank doesn't factor into those explanations. And so I'm trying to say, you know, through my book and through whatever conversations I'm having saying like, I see the same problem that you see. Now let's look at the cause on a more base level. Let's look at it in a more, you know, from a different angle than you're used to looking at it. And hopefully we can have those conversations, right? Like, I don't think that like the fiat base layer of money and the cancel on effect is the only problem, but I do think that's one that gets right. ignored by people on the left all the time because mm. they just don't know it. Right. So let's have a more robust conversation about the causes and then potential solutions for these things. Right. That's that's an important thread to pull on of not letting one marvelous thing be the solution to everything. This notion that Bitcoin is going to fix fucking everything, <laughs> I think, also sort of takes responsibility away from communities and countries and governments. Right. Government's not going away next week. OK, so this no. is I. I I've I've engaged more recently with some of the libertarian anarcho-capitalist ideas. I think there's a lot of powerful themes there, but I think even they can agree. Even if that utopian future were to kind of come to exist, right? On that and that perspective, the training wheels aren't coming off for a long period of time. So back to an example you provided. What do we do to make sure kids get fed mm -hmm. in the medium term? Right. 
maybe Bitcoin in a more prosperous future helps us along that path. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't collaborate and vote and think through how we fix that problem next month and next year. Yeah, right. Uh, a couple words you used in the book numerous times that I think are worth filling in. First of sure. all, you used the words open and flat to describe Bitcoin about why it's important. Yep. And then you had this other section where you talked about why permissionlessness and censorship resistance are, quote, critically important to advancing a host of progressive values. When I read this, I thought through, I don't think most liberals would necessarily think that right away. Right. Fill that idea in. Why are those rights in the digital age so important and so critical for money in particular? Right. I think, I mean, one of the big things that concerns me about society in general right now is people's willingness to give up privacy for convenience. So that's step one, right? There, people are willingly doing this. Uh, step two is like they don't understand the technology well enough. Like even if somebody wanted to be very private online, um, you know, I don't even know how to do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I probably would have written my name pseudonymously or the, written the book pseudonymously if I could have, but I don't know how to <laughs> stay secret. So, um, I I think that ultimately, what um, you know, in, in some respects, you can see that the banking system as it exists excludes certain people. Uh, it does like there are people in America that are unbanked um, or underbanked and don't have the resources they need to access their own money or to transact in frictionless ways. Like that's already a problem. You see that all over the world. There's billions of people who are unbanked and underbanked. So like that permissionless, that openness to to um, participate in the Bitcoin network is supremely important and could potentially help people access their funds, access their money, transact in a way that's frictionless in a way that they just simply do not have right now. And I think that if you want, if you care about the betterment of humankind and like building up people's quality of life, like being able to use a monetary technology that is frictionless and free is, is absolutely important. And I think that the other thing that you can see is there's a lot of people who like to make themselves, make themselves feel better by donating to charities. Okay, I'm going to there's these hungry people across the world. I'm going to donate to a charity, but not realizing that that charity is getting, you know, censored by a, a government on the other side of the world. The funds are getting frozen, confiscated. People mm. are becoming political, you know, uh, enemies because this stuff is happening to stand up against authoritarian regimes. Like it is very important to have money that works and is not dependent on a third party approving a transaction or isn't susceptible to a government stepping in and, and seizing funds or something like that. So if you want to be like a, a do-gooder and like do good in the world, like you need money that works. And we just, I mean, Americans have money that works most of the time, but a lot of the people uh, who need that help don't have the money that they need. So I think that those are kind of the tenets I'm trying to get at and make people really think about, you know, if the audience is an American person who's, you know, not thinking about this stuff regularly, start to get them thinking about like, how does money work for you? How does it work for everybody else in the world? And is that fair? How can we actually help people who need it? For sure. Mm. Dan and I have been talking recently quite a bit about this idea that Bitcoin is inevitable. There's this cohort of people that seem to think, I don't have yeah. to do anything. I don't have to engage. I can just put my head in the sand, not worry about this, sit on my Bitcoin for the next 20 years and everything's going to work out fine, right? That's why I absolutely love this book because I think the three of us would agree that it's, this is not inevitable. Nothing in this world is inevitable. And it's very important for people mm. of all views to be 
taking a look at this thing more seriously. And your book, I think, is going to do more good work on spreading this, well, making this Venn diagram a little larger in the center. Like we're going to yeah. be able to spread this out, um, God willing here, to uh, people that maybe would have never considered this before and from, from some perspectives that you can provide that just make it easier for them, you know, more approachable. And right. we, we need to keep working at this thing. That's why we do what we do here is this is, this is literally the, we've talked about this too, as well years ago, like this is, we've got no coding capabilities. We don't know shit about <laughs> <laughs> how this thing works, like by the numbers, we can, yeah, we yeah. can regurgitate all the books, you know, we've read, but sure. like if I had to go into the Bitcoin core and like figure it out, like I'm complete lost puppy. I have no idea. <laughs> Josh and I will occasionally get like DMs and emails, Jason, yeah. where they're, I mean, Josh and I know our way around. Let's not sell ourselves short. We've sure. run nodes. We've started multi-sigs. We, we, we've but done a coders. lot with Bitcoin. We're not coders. We're not coders at all, right? So it depends on it depends on your perspective of what technical means, True. right? Yeah, to yeah, to yeah, the yeah. average boomer, Josh and I are you know, running, running circles. But to, yeah. to someone that actually knows what they're talking about, we're clueless. But sometimes we'll get emails from people with paragraphs like i can't even i don't even fucking know what they're talking about and basically my response right. is uh just because we talk into microphones and have smart people on doesn't mean we have a clue like you know way more about the question you're asking than i do right, i'm right. completely lost yeah. yeah but i think to to your to josh's point like yeah like i don't it doesn't sit well with me to say okay bitcoin's inevitable i think that you know if you take fix the money, fix the world. Like there's a middle step there, which is like work really hard, right? Like educate yep. people, get people on board, do coding. Like if that's what you can do, like uh, help people set up their their wallets, you know, like all of that stuff. Like you can actually do that work. You can go and and like help people that need helping or help teach people like what you guys are doing. So just copy the Mormon book. We'll just, you know, go door to door with a with right. the Bitcoin standard, <laughs> sell it to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Gideon Bitcoin Bible <laughs> in every hotel room. Yeah, yeah. that's perfect, right? I, I leave my business card and uh, you know for the book <laughs> in hotels, but I, I just I think that you're right. Like it's um, there's a lot of examples throughout history where the the best technology, like the objectively this is a better technology A over B, doesn't get adopted, and there's a yep. million reasons why that can happen, right? Mm. And and so we need to be yes. careful resting on our laurels and say, well, Bitcoin is the better technology therefore it's inevitable um it doesn't have to be that way right and so like we should all be thinking in those in that lens like what can i do to help promote help make bitcoin more secure help make bitcoin more widely adopted it change the narrative so it's okay for people to talk about bitcoin and like not sound like a crazy person um so i think that we all need to be doing that like those things and that's critically important Oh man, I love that point, dude. I, narratives matter so much. Yeah. I mean, we, we've talked about it at length uh, when we had Swenson on. That was a main thrust of the whole conversation. There are, as you just articulated, there are some great ideas through history that have not come to fruition because they didn't have the narrative propulsion behind them to get them out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. I mean, that and that could absolutely happen to Bitcoin. I think there's a lot of diverse incentives and a lot of reasons Bitcoin's going to succeed. But uh, this thing getting pigeonholed into certain narratives and belief systems and not expanding outside of it unnecessarily, as we've established in this show, is a problem. Like one example would be, and I, I'm, not, I'm not here to pick on libertarianism because I think there's a lot of beauty in it. But if Bitcoin just be, if Bitcoin becomes overly libertarian, uh -huh. 
libertarians very fringe man yeah I'm, I'm sorry for the people listening it's super fucking fringe like there's not that many libertarians yeah they don't know that because they only listen to each other so. dan dan have you read atlas shrugged man you haven't even read atlas shrugged you don't know what and, you're talking by the about way, I'm on. I'm on. For me, I've just I, I just finished Safedine's Principles of Economics, right. which is a wonderful uh, roadmap to Austrian econ and libertarianism. I think there's so much beauty. I took a ton from it. But I'm just telling the audience, even though they may not feel that way in their filter bubble, it's it's a very small community. It's very fringe. Yep. If Bitcoin is totally trapped inside that fish tank, it's never making it out into the ocean. So th- this is why we're we're advocates of what what you're building because. It's 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 casting a much wider net. I think that that's to me like if you're asking me what's the biggest threat to Bitcoin, right? Because I I do believe that it will succeed, and and I don't I'm not saying inevitable, but I do think that yeah you know, I'm betting on Bitcoin becoming the next thing that can help people and make the world a better place, and I do think it will succeed, but it's not guaranteed. And the biggest threat to it is because if it gets pigeonholed, right? Because I don't want Bitcoin to become one of those things that if if you know that that I like Bitcoin, then you know that I like these twelve other things, right? Like you can just do the checklist. Mm, right. And there's a lot of things like that. I tell you how I feel about affirmative action or abortion or whatever the case is, right? Like I tell you how I, I think about those. You check off all of the boxes. I don't want Bitcoin to get pigeonholed in that way because that becomes like a left-right issue or it's only this one fringe group and libertarians are fringe group in terms of size. <laughs> it's not like, you know, we can't take over the world if Bitcoin's only adopted by those types of people. So to me, that's the biggest uh, that's the biggest fear I have and the biggest threat to Bitcoin success. And that's what I'm trying to, to address. Yeah. And the, that cohort definitely was the, it was the nursery of Bitcoin. You know, it was first computer nerds, super ultra computer nerds on the cypherpunk list who had that libertarian lean. And then I think it kind of broadened out into more libertarian, you know, circles, gold bugs, those kinds of maybe, I think a lot of younger gold bugs back in the day got into this and they're always have that predisposition for libertarianism. Um, and now it's kind of, you know, jumping out of the nest here and we need to make sure it opens those wings and doesn't hit the fucking ground at 60 miles an hour. Agreed. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, if Bitcoin is as radically inclusive and significant as we suggest, it's going to represent all of humanity. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of like your kid growing up and leaving for college for people that have been in Bitcoin for a while. (laughs) What it was when you got going in 2013 or 2015 or 2017 or 2020, it won't be that way in 2030. We're looking at something that has the potential to to be that big of a deal. And so it's going to represent that level of diversity. Right. It's that simple. What you're suggesting here is that Satoshi started Bitcoin with an orgasm. Is that the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, immac- the immaculate orgasm. Yeah, that's right. Of Satoshi. <laughs> I yeah. can get behind that. That's a, that's a thread narrative we can do. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, to your point, it is absolutely true. If your goal is to have a world money that is accessible to everybody, then you have to be okay with everybody using it. And like the idea that you're just going to sort of write off my book or like people that I'm trying to educate because they don't fit in the category that you think, which by the way, those categories are sort of like fiat world imposed categories, like, and people yeah. are attached to them and they're important. But like, if you're just sort of writing off a bunch of people because they don't fit what you think Bitcoin is, then you're not really working mm. towards a, a world money for everybody. And I think that's what we should be working for. So that's, you know, I agree with what you're saying. Man, this has been spectacular. Mm, 
I mean, the orga- the orgasm alone, you know, like I like, <laughs> I think about like this idea that we don't know if Satoshi was a group of people and now we're talking about like a group of people having an orgasm to start it. It's great. <laughs> we don't know if it was a gangbang or just, you know, if it, <laughs> yeah. if it was a lifelong love, but either way. The immaculate orgy. Consenting adults, anything, <laughs> anything is allowed. It's fine. The immaculate orgy for Bitcoin. Exactly. Man, this is going to be on the, this is the title of the episode. I think it might have to <laughs> yeah. be. I think so. Perfect. Yeah. We could go a lot longer as is usual, but we won't. Um, appreciate your time. Give a handoff to whatever you want, Jason, sure. as we close out here. Yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, I appreciate the, the chance to get on with you guys. Um, I think I told you in person, Dan, that I've been a fan and listen to you guys all the time. It's how I, I learned about Greg Foss. So <laughs> like <laughs> indebted to you guys. Um, and so thank you for the time. I think if people want to learn more about the book or to buy it, you can go to my website, which is per, uh, bitcoinprogressive.com. It's a great way to get in touch with me. I'm also on Twitter uh, or X, uh, C. Jason Mayer is the handle. Um, I will be at Big, uh, Pacific Bitcoin and Bitcoin Amsterdam. So if people want to see me in person, get their books signed or just have a conversation, then I'll, I'll be there and welcome people coming up to me and uh, saying hi. So that's, oh, yeah. Those are the handoffs. You're going from Gotta, one to the other, hopping on a plane from yeah. California, basically over to Europe. Uh, huh? Yeah, and you know, not like the, I didn't have any conversations with my spouse about this, but uh, it'll be <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's totally yeah. good. It's totally yeah. fine. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. So I'll be in both of those places and, and eager to meet people. So if you see if you see me walking around awkwardly, just say hi. Awesome. It's funny you mentioned the Foss origination when you first heard him because I remember very vividly the first time I heard Foss. I wonder, if, Dan, do you remember the first time you heard him? I do. It was on yeah, me too. Yeah. First I remember I what him, I was yeah. doing. That guy's got such, you know, such a character. You're like, you can't forget the first time you heard Foss. Fuck, dude. I do too. I remember, I at least remember being at a Chipotle picking up an order <laughs> when I was listening to that episode. I was listening to Pish putting Barnwood on a wall in my house. I remember very specifically what I was doing. Yeah. Appreciate you, Jason. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. That will do it for this week, folks. Thanks for chilling with us. Josh and I felt this was a really important conversation with Jason. Bitcoin is a radically inclusive technology, and the discourse around it should be just the same. Go give his book a read. If you are a person who is digging blue-collar Bitcoin, help us extend the reach of this podcast by taking a minute out of your day to rate the show or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. You can also find Blue Collar Bitcoin on YouTube if you prefer watching video of these discussions. The link is down in the notes. If you haven't checked out Podcast 2.0 apps, go give them a try. Our go-to app for podcasts is Fountain, a place where you can literally earn Bitcoin for listening to this show and many others. There is no catch. You all have a dandy week ahead. And remember, Bitcoin is for everyone, even those you disagree with. Take care.